When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, uh, welcome to another episode of New Books in Chinese Studies. Uh, my name is Clara Iwasaki, and I am one of the hosts um, for the channel. Um, I'm here today with Professor uh, Yunxiang Gao, who is a professor of history um, at uh, the institution currently named Ryerson University in Toronto, Ontario, although uh, that university is in the process of renaming itself. Um, she is the author of a previous book, uh, Sporting Gender, New Women Athletes and Celebrity Making During China's National Crisis, 1931 to 1945. Um, however, I am here to talk with her about um, her second book, Arise Africa, Roar China, New Black and Chinese Citizens of the World in the 20th Century. So Professor Gao, welcome to the channel. Professor Iwasaki, thank you for having me here. Uh, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Um, can you just let us know um, really briefly and generally how you became interested in the field of, um, in, in your field of transnational history? Okay. So I think, you know, for uh, most writers, researchers, and their work will be uh, roughly, mostly autobiographical, I would imagine. So for me, uh, as an immigrant and a self-claimed citizen of the world, uh, I'm naturally attracted to people, the figures in both my books, uh, whose endeavors across the racial, national, and cultural and linguistic boundaries and uh, so us uh, so that the world always remains connected. And despite political, legal, immigration, and diplomatic uh, hurdles, and meanwhile, of course, uh, being able to access to uh, multilingual and multiple stream sources and enable me to connect uh, domains commonly considered uh, non-overlapping. 
That is such an interesting answer. Uh, thank you so much for that. Um, and so, you know, turning, I guess, from the general to the particular, um, I'm really curious, how did you become interested in this particular topic? Yeah, actually, I came across this topic when I was researching uh, for my first book, uh, Sporting Gender. And so when I read what was uh, going through the newspapers, I came across some uh, laudatory articles on WEB and Sterling Graham Du Bois. Uh, in a newspaper called the People's Daily, uh, the mouthpiece of the pe- of, of the pe- of the Communist Party of China, and so that kind of refreshed some memory I had about a newspaper, old newspaper, and a poster. And so in my childhood home in Mongolia, the ceiling was wood uh, board pasted with old newspaper for insulation. And I remember after I learned to read and write, I couldn't help noticing. Uh, headline above my pillow every night. And so until that news, newspaper was covered by a new layer before the next Chinese New, new Year. So therefore, it was kind of inscribed in my head. Uh, Robert Williams and Madame Du Bois uh, fervently acclaim Chairman Mao's statement supporting American Blacks at a brutality struck. Okay, and also that newspaper in my memory was connected to a particular poster in a small classroom uh, in my elementary school. So that poster featured uh, indignant men and women uh, for different skin tones in uh, ethnic clothing, charging forward, okay, and to symbolize their uh, united uh, liberation struggles. So in the middle of this poster was a muscular black man holding gun at a very middle of, I mean, at a very center of the crowd. So uh, my interest is kind of developing in that direction simultaneously when I was working on my first book. So when my first book was uh, published in 2013 by UBC Press, and at the same time, I published the article uh, entitled W.E.B. and Sully Graham Du Bois in Moist China in the journal uh, called Du Bois Review. And this article explores how the Du Bois efforts and their endeavors in Moist China added new dimensions to Sino-American relations and Black internationalism. So such an, it's a really interesting fact that, or a sort of interesting anecdote that uh, your interest is both, you know, in terms of kind of coming more organically out of your first book research, but also um, this kind of like really ingrained childhood memory of kind of having to you know, read this thing o- over and over um, until the new year, which is so, so, such an interesting thing to think about. But um, yeah, it's such a fascinating story. Thank you so much for for sharing it with us. Um, I guess, you know, to, to kind of move into, you know, talking about the book, um, you know, how did you come to select the historical figures that you did for this book. Um, there are a number of people, I think you've already mentioned uh, the, 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 the Du Bois couple um, who people may know, and then some people that they may be less familiar with. So how did you come to select these figures? That's a very good question. Okay, among so many people, why them? Okay, so uh, as I mentioned, while I was working on about mentioned Du Bois article, I learned more about other people. First, I learned about Paul Robeson, the famous uh, singer and actor, and a close ally of the Du Bois. And so, well, I looked into the lives and career of the, uh, of the very fascinating career of uh, uh, 
Paul Robertson, I discovered his interactions with China, with, China, with Chinese and also China. And so in this process, I, I discovered, came across his Chinese allies, Liu Liangmo and Sylvia Slanchen. And so here I'd like to mention you one piece of article and I felt very, uh, I mean, I, I felt fascinating and, uh, about the chance. Actually, that's what Robertson wrote. Uh, he, he, that's, that's what he said. In Moscow, some years ago, that is to say 1934, I met three young Chinese, a fellow named Jack Chen and his two sisters. Jack was a newspaper man. One of his sisters was a motion picture technician and the other one was a dancer. So this dancer uh, was Slanchen, of course, another figure in my book. Uh, so Jack was a slight chap, medium height and soft-spoken. He spoke beautiful English. He came to my concerts and we sat around many nights and talked of China and its future. This was in 1936 and 37. Later, I met him in London and we often appeared there for China, China relief. It was an interesting experience to see and meet a Chinese who was part Negro and felt close to both his people. I believe he's now back in China, the new China, helping to build a better life for his countrymen. So that was the very first paragraph I ever read about the chance. Of course, immediately I was very interested who they were. So while working on uh, Slanchen, of course, I came across Leslie Heaps as her lover. So uh, basically, I traced these figures just like her interlocked chains. Of course, each of these figures uh, represented uh, their unique and distinct distinctive domain. Yet, uh, their lives and political activism are interlocked across the globe. So here I would like to quote as quoted Asia Review books. Uh, Gao tells a good story, actually fine, and tells them very well that the stories and the protagonists are all linked. Yields a book is far more than the sum of its parts. Okay, so that's how I found those figures. That's um, really interesting. I. Uh... You know, one of the things that first attracted me to this book was, in fact, um, I, I think I read the same passage about uh, Silan Chen uh, hmm. when I taught, um, I think I, I taught uh, Langston Hughes's um, memoir in a class. And I remember being really interested in the appear in her appearance. And, you know, if, if it's not something you're really focused on, you, you're like, oh, that's interesting. I, I wonder if there's anything else about her. And I think probably within three or four months, I saw the description of your book and I was like, oh, wow. Um, usually <laughs> you don't just get an answer to like, oh, I'd love to know more about that. Um, but it was, uh, you know, in a sort of historical work, you know, I, you had to do so much work, I'm sure to like, and, and hopefully we'll get to talk about some of that, you know, how to kind of yeah. excavate these like minor historical figures who, you know, have just not really had the same kind of focus on them. Um, and so it was just like so gratifying, you know, it was kind of like a fairy story for me. You ask and then you receive, right? This, uh, you, I get to know all about her and about her family. So um, yeah, I, I really um, think that's a huge contribution um, to the book Thank or to you. the field. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, just on a totally frivolous note, like 
I personally <laughs> found my own curiosity very well satisfied by this chapter. So I'm looking forward to talking about that in a little bit. Um, but but first of all, I guess, um, you know, let's talk about that first chapter, which focuses on W.E.B. and Shirley Graham Du Bois. Um, and, you know, I was really struck by the fact that, um, you know, you kind of take a really long DeRay look at their history. Um, I've definitely read a bit about them. Um, I'm not a specialist in this field, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of interested in this in the period and I'm interested in the subject. And, you know, I've seen treatments of uh, particularly W.E.B. Du Bois's uh, kind of flirtation or engagement with, uh, you know, Pan-Asianism and, and Japanese imperialism. And I've also seen, you know, him, his kind of, you know, engagement with the People's Republic of China. Um, but I, I haven't seen somebody really kind of put those two things together. And I, I was really struck by the fact that, um, you know, those are two kind of very charged periods in different national histories in East Asia, um, you know, particularly in terms of Japanese imperialism. Um, there, there are several other historians who have kind of um, cast him in, in that uh, light as kind of the bad guy, um, not undeservedly, uh, you know, it was not a great thing. Um, but you don't, I, I don't think you think that it was great, but like, I, you know, you don't really do that. You kind of approach his kind of relationship with a, a number of these issues altogether. And I, I did find this to be a, a really interesting approach and one that I really admired. Um, I think it's, it's always harder to to not try to find a bad guy uh, when one is is kind of doing this sort of work. So, you know, I, I'm just sort of curious, you know, how did you come to approach the chapter in this way? It's a very insightful observation, actually. So indeed, for all the five figures, actually, uh, the book adopted such an approach and to explore how they have to constantly juggle the ever-shifting slavery, trans-Pacific politics and ideologies over most of the 20th century. And because of their racist and their leftist activism. activism. And so I feel, you know, if these this, uh, five individuals' long trajectories help us to understand, to look at the networks of Chinese and Americans close to them, and also help to set light on the Sino-American cultural and the political context that shaped the course of the 20th century. So as you observed, you know, this approach, of course, is particularly useful and to help us to, and I was use not a useful word to judge, I'm gonna, I, you know, my purpose is to mostly focus on, to understand and the Du Bois complex and sifting connections to Pan-Africanism and Pan-Asianism. And so, um, I think their trips to China and their comments on China and Asia within the context of race, colonialism, capitalism, and socialism or communism over the long, you know, I mean, over the long decades of the 20th century, they have certainly enlarged the story of their lives and thoughts. And Du Bois' famous dictum. Uh, that is the question of the 20th century is that of the color line had to be understand. I mean, the full meaning has to be looked at in the light of the couple's long-term dynamics with China and Asia. That's why I took such an approach. Yeah, I think that's a really, you know, I think really rich and, you know, I think you gain a lot by 
you know, really having this kind of much more complicated, much more intricate, you know, much more kind of nuanced look at these things. Um, and as you point out in, in that response, right, it is this really kind of like longstanding relationship. So, you know, I, I personally just got a lot out of that. Um, I'd like to turn, you know, this is perhaps a question that addresses both your first and your second chapter, um, the second chapter devoted to Paul Robeson. Um, but, you know, in both that first chapter on W.E.B. Du Bois and on Paul Robeson's chapter, you really see, you know, and you really handle um, the kind of history and the sort of separate intellectual trajectories um, of their wives, uh, Shirley Graham Du Bois and Eslanda Robeson. Um, so I'm kind of curious, you know, why you chose to include um, Graham Du Bois and Robeson stories in their husband's chapters um, instead of, you know, giving each of them a separate chapter or leaving them out entirely. Um, and so in that second chapter, you, you discuss the career of Paul Robeson and his relationship to China. Um, but a significant part of it is is also devoted to the career of his wife. So can you talk, uh, you know, a little bit about how her own career contrasted with or stimulated Robeson's relationship with China? Very good question. Actually, indeed, you are absolutely absolutely right. And Sorry, Grand Boy and Islana Robeson, and their roles in this narrative actually volunteer uh, scholarships independent of this book. So I myself have accumulated a lot of materials and hopefully for a new project. And I also I hope this new project will break new ground by introducing extremely rare stories of interactions between Chinese and African American women. Okay. Some very interesting materials, but of course I have no room to put all of it here. <laughs> so, so for this book, uh, obviously I have only uh, incorporated materials on these women and directly relevant to their husband's stories. Okay. So these activists, the five citizens of war I covered in this book, certainly were, they were not alone. And their spouses uh, impact their careers and ideologies. And in general, uh, the women companion, companions of the male figures are generally more radical. And so in the case of Sirley Graham and uh, Islanda, they helped actually push their husband, uh, I mean, uh, encouraged at least uh, their embrace of Chinese communism. And take uh, Robinson uh, as an example. And Robinson himself never visited China, and yet his wife traveled there soon after the establishment of the People's Republic of China and affirming the couple's alliance with the new routine. And so feeling honored and enlightened by what she saw. And Islanda served as a messenger and with the American public, lauding for a happy, egalitarian, and prosperous socialist new China. And this supported Robinson's romantic view of the people's public China. Okay, so Islam particularly applauded the land reform as the greatest, greatest, greatest thing ever because it basically granted all Chinese citizens, women and men, equal access to a home, school, and job. Okay. Of course, the PRC means, I mean, the People's Republic of China, Republic of China followed Islam's political active, activism on behalf of China. Among many, uh, I mean, examples, for instance, the people's daily applauded her, along with 
30 grand reward for tearing down the flag of Taiwan at a conference uh, in Ghana, our Africa conference in December 1958 to break down the U.S. Uh, government's two-channel so that's the, you know, the consistency regarding their thoughts and prayers for the Robinsons. As you mentioned, as you observed probably, there were contrasts as well. For instance, uh, when Pearl Buck, the Nobel laureate and gate keeper of China affairs in the United States back then, and reached out to Paul Robinson uh, in the 1940s, and his re response was lukewarm. Meanwhile, his, his wife, uh, eager to pursue an independent career as a writer and lecturer and cultivated a very productive personal and professional relationship with a famous writer. Eventually, the two women shared activism on U.S. racial relations was capped by their 1949 book entitled American Argument, published by uh, John Day Company, owned by Buck's husband, Richard Walsh. Uh, in this book, interestingly, interestingly, the co-authors uh, debated about communism with some heat. So that's the story. It's such an interesting point. Um, there's such a lot there, but you know, I really find that kind of sense of the fact that both uh, Graham Du Bois and Eslander Robeson kind of having this, like, you know, in sometimes more radical, you know, or or often just sort of differential relationship with you know various political or or social movements that, that is really interesting, you know, something that I, I, I found quite enjoyable and, and I learned a lot, uh, you know, from reading that. Um, so, you know, I, I would like to just sort of ask a little bit more about, um, you know, the kind of Robeson chapter. Um, and one of the things that I was struck with, you know, Robeson, I think as you observe in the book and, and as I'm sure many of our listeners may be aware, right, it, it is not that that relationship to the People's Republic is unknown. Um, people have written about it. But, you know, one of the things that really struck me, you know, one of the many things that struck me about this chapter um, was I had not seen, and I, you know, I haven't read everything, certainly, but I have not really seen an analysis of the ways in which the Chinese language press at the time, um, when they were writing about him, often kind of mediated his persona in Chinese through racial stereotype. Um, and again, you know, not to say that, you know, they're, well, you know, similar, I think, it, to the way that I found your treatment of W.E.B. Du Bois and a kind of refusal to sort of cast him as, a, as the bad guy, right? <laughs> I, I don't know, you know, like, I don't think that you're just like, oh, it was all bad. Like, it was just, they were very racist. But, you know, you don't really shy away from it. And you do include this. Whereas I, I think often this kind of um, narrative of Afro-Asian Afro unity or third world solidarity, you know, maybe makes that aspect of the coverage a little bit inconvenient. And so I, I really found this to be, uh, you know, an, an interesting aspect of this chapter. And I'm kind of curious, you know, what prompted you to include this in your chapter? You mean uh, about the race aspect? Yeah. You know, I'm not just uh, telling, telling a, a straightforward story about, you know, good or bad judge. I think, you know, for me, my understanding as a historian, uh, I'm just trying to tell the full story and to illustrate the complexity of things as they were or that as they are. Not take just 
pick this this straightforward story, linear story, tell it conveniently. So that's what I not I was trying to do. I think like you mentioned about Slam Chen, you know, I discover similarly with other figures, I feel like a detect, detective. I'm a detective, detect all the stories and all the multiple uh, layers, the complexity, the complexity of the story. That was my goal. That's why, you know, I include there because someone there, that's the real story. And that's why it makes, you know, the history and life and what I'm writing the book interesting. And because it's, it's com it was complex. So my goal was to show it was complex as it was. Yeah, thank you so much for that mm -hmm. that answer. I really, I, I really do, <laughs> you know, appreciate that. Um, okay, uh, well, you know, let's turn. Regretfully, I, you know, I could probably talk to you about this for five hours, but we don't really have that. That would be very unfair of me. Um, but you know, let's turn from two, you know, really famous figures. I think people that a, a lot of people are aware of, a lot of people know, uh, to somebody who's a lot less well known, uh, who's yeah. uh, Liu Liangmo. And so can you, you know, maybe briefly talk listeners through his career and also, you know, why unlike a number of other much better known Sino-American cultural brokers, his career is much less well understood until now. Yeah, so, you know, let, let me try to keep this break brief, you know, because Liu Liangmo, I think, is a very interesting guy. And so let me introduce him uh, briefly. He was a prolific journalist. And he was a talented musician, and he was a Christian activist. And so he, for me, to serve, you know, serve as an example of how highly educated and politicized Chinese and negotiated their own beliefs within this shifting uh, trans-Pacific ideolo ideological and racial landscapes uh, over the 20th century. Okay. So for, for Liu Liangmo, his biography kind of matches the American myth about a self-made man. So he was born in poverty, and yet he put himself through the missionary university of Shanghai through hardworking and resourcefulness. And so he was fluent in uh, Shanghai dialect, Cantonese, Mandarin, and English, and he published hundreds of articles in both Chinese and in English, uh, in all in periodicals across the Pacific over his long career. And so after he launched the so-called mass singing movement in China for war mobilization, and he soldiered to the United States in 1940. And during the decade, and he was there, he traveled more than 100,000 100, miles and uh, across the U.S., you know, the small big cities and small towns, what he was doing, and he was giving lectures and speeches to American public and singing and recording Chinese fighting and folk songs. And I also remember at that time that he traveled across, and the U.S. was uh, under Jim Crow laws and Chinese Exclusion Act. Okay. And so therefore, while he was there doing this work, and doing the outreach to the American public. And so worth, worth noting, and because he shared the dream of uh, racial justice and equality, Liu Liang was a pioneer among Chinese in a close collaboration with African American. And he experienced their social activism, activism firsthand, and he allowed uh, Black Britain's uh, 
Tuan Chinese, uh, his Chinese readers and Chinese audience, audiences without reservation. And so among the numerous domains in which Liu Liangmu and Paul Robeson collaborated, they helped to globalize uh, a song called Qi Lai, also called March of Volunteers. So that was a signature piece of the Trans-Pacific Mass Singing Movement and also the future uh, national anthem of the People's Republic of China. Okay. And another major achievement of Liu was to uh, contribute a column called uh, China Speaks Weekly Column, column uh, to Pittsburgh Korea. That was the biggest uh, black newspaper from 1942 to 1945. He wrote uh, 123 articles for them. Okay. And uh, then uh, later on in 1949, Liu Liangmu returned to People's Republic of China and he became a high cultural level official. And most notably, uh, he led the reform of the Christianity in China according to the party's ideology. And also he swatted uh, waves, waves of radical political campaigns in China and with un-euro and very rare political agility. Okay. And meanwhile, once he returned to China, he started to introduce uh, great African-Americans like uh, the abolitionist uh, Frederick Douglass and scientist Carl Washington and to the Socialist Secretary of China. And also he facilitated uh, the exception of W.E.B. Du Bois and Paul Robeson as revolutionary heroes, heroes in People's Republic of China. So that was the story of Liu Liangwen. And now briefly why he, was, he has been forgotten mostly. I think, you know, for the major social movement he was attacked, he was associated with, that was a, a mass singing movement during the Second World War. And however, I think this movement later on was transformed into the mass singing of so-called red sounds in today's People's Republic of China for social and political campaigns. And so because this new format was so dominant, the old format, I mean, uh, kind of uh, became overshadowed. That's one reason. Another reason I think his prolific writing uh, was mostly popular journalism uh, catering to the contemporary issues. So after the after I mean after time changed in a new time, since you know those articles were quickly forgotten. So that's what I would understand. It's really very nice um, kind of summary of how he intersects with so many like momentous aspects of, of transnational history and, and Chinese history also. It is, you know, I think a real contribution of the book that we, you know, I've heard his name before. Again, I'm not an expert in this, but he always kind of appears in the periphery. Like you kind of hear a little bit about him, but he's never the center. So I you know, it was very satisfying, you know, just simply as one of your readers to uh, finally have a chance to kind of like understand who this person who, you know, has really often kind of just been mentioned in passing or has kind of played a very minor role in other studies, you know, to kind of give him his due. So that was, you know, really kind of interesting part of this. Um, so, you know, to kind of return to another character or another figure in your book who you know, I think you, you've already mentioned her quite a bit. And I, you know, personally also, I'm just very interested to hear so much more about this, right? Uh, Sylvia Silan Chen. Um, and so, you know, she's also a person who is not, I think, maybe received what might, you know, uh, you know, 
the kind of fame or attention that has even been accorded to her cousin Dai Ailian. Um, and so you, you offer a lot of really rich information um, about her career as a dancer, as well as a biracial Chinese woman, uh, which she sometimes identifies as. And then, you know, as you've also represented, I, I, her racial identity has been quite complicated. Um, but one of the other things that you do that I, I really found quite interesting um, is that you really provide like a very full picture of the Chen family as a whole. And so, you know, I guess in a similar way to Liu Liangmo, what made you decide to include Chen in this book? Um, and how does she connect with a number of the other figures that you explore here? I think that's a very good question. Yeah, so I think it's a Sinai Chen story, like Liu Liangmo's story, is very fascinating. Okay, I'm glad, you know, as you mentioned, you know, I connect all the doors. And hopefully, you know, provide a fuller picture about this very interesting but forgotten figures. So we talk about Liu Liangmo. Now, Sinai Chen, um, she was the first uh, modern Chinese solo dancer choreographer with an international reputation. Um, as you mentioned, and she happened to be associated with a few very important and famous figures. First, uh, he was a, sorry, she was a daughter of Eugene Chen, as China's foreign minister in the 1920s, and, with, and, and his fresh, fresh Creole wife. Okay, so that was the first connection. The second one, as you mentioned, um, Sulan Chen was a cousin of Dai Lian, the, the acclaimed mother of China's modern dance. Uh, by the way, the Chens and Dai, Dai Lian were all born in Trinidad, and they, they barely spoke Chinese. And so that's the second collection of Sulan Chen in, uh, in her life, of course, as you mentioned, as I mentioned as well. And China's dramatic encoder with lasting hues, was the, writer, the, the writer's most visible and best knowing heterosexual relationships. So here, let me read the paragraph. You, you were very uh, interested, you, you have memory of it. So the, here, that's, uh, here is the paragraph how lasting hue describes Slanchen. Slan, I found a delicate flower-like girl, beautiful in a really golden-skinned sort of way. In her long, tight, high-necked uh, Chinese dresses, with a little slit in the side, at the side, showing a very pretty hair. Sun was a girl I was in love, um, in love with that winter. So which winter? The winter of 1932 and 1933 that I was in Moscow. Okay, so the romance uh, was built on their shared radicalism. Okay. During that time, that space in Moscow in the early, early 30s, okay? So there, actually, Chen helped to connect Western Hughes to a network of international communist movement and propelled uh, him into the leftist cultural circles in Shanghai. And so now I hope uh, the listeners still remember the paragraph I read uh, by Paul Robertson about the Chen siblings. So connecting this uh, together, we can imagine Paul Robeson and Hughes. Uh, they both, how to say this? Uh, they, they, you know, sort of like captured their fanciful gazes and imaginations. I mean, Hughes and Robeson. Both of them saw and portrayed as personifying the perfect union of Black and Chinese. Okay. 
I mean, a while, if you read the full chapter, you understand Sulan's journey and to choreograph and dance ethnicity, war, and revolution across the globe. And it was not always a smooth dirt journey. And they always came, she always came across complex racial and political uh, situation because her interest in, uh, yes, because her interest in union. And so most notably, I think I would like to mention was that the double burdens of her race or her races and leftist background forced her to live under the nerve-wracking uh, heavy status cast by the powerful uh, immigration at FBI. And in collaboration with the Chinese national government for over four decades. Okay. And meanwhile, so that's, uh, I mean, her personal journey, as uh, you mentioned, was shared by her global globetrotting family. The metropolitan chains and their descendants actually scattered throughout the world, including Trinidad, England, France, Soviet Union, North America, and China. Of course, and privilege and wealth allowed them to push the geographic, gender, and racial boundaries and in the turbulent years of the 20th century. And meanwhile, all of them, like Sulan, they had to negotiate their uh, racial ambiguity, and uh, they were often caught by crossing ideological, political, and bureaucratic obstacles. I hope I have answered your question. Yeah, I think, um, you know, a really rich, uh, really full answer, you know, and, um, you know, unfortunately, you know, not, there's no fault with the answer at all, but, um, you know, there is just so much uh, below the surface that, um, you know, for, for listeners who are interested, I strongly recommend, you know, if you, if you, you should read the whole book. If you only have time to read one chapter, you should read that chapter because there's just so much in there um, that Professor Gao has had to leave out um, in the interest of, of not, you know, being here for 10 hours, which he does not probably want to do. Um, but there really is just like so much in there, um, you know, that, that is just like very interesting and very rich. And, you know, there, I could read a whole book about them. But um, yeah, it was a, a really interesting chapter. I think uh, probably one of my favorites in this book to, to read. So yeah, thank you so much for that. And um, you know, just, you know, listeners, please just consider this to be a jumping off point into, you know, a, a number of other issues that are explored in, in a lot of detail um, in that chapter. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> I mean, I, I would love to, but that would just be so, so unfair. Um, but I, I would, it, it is, it is such a fascinating, they are such interesting people. Um, and, uh, you know, the more that you, you know, after having read that chapter, actually, the more I, I have started to pay attention. And I, I do see like Jack Chen, particularly, I think kind of pop up here and there and in other things. So but yeah, that has just been sort of like an interesting um, aspect of this. But um, I guess like, uh, you know, sort of bring us closer to a close um, here, you know, you end your, uh, you know, the final chapter um, in this book is uh, that about Langston Hughes. Um, and so I guess I, I have a slightly more kind of um, meta question, which is, you know, why did you choose to end the book with Langston Hughes? Um, and how do his experiences, I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I did feel like, you know, a lot of the themes in his chapter do intersect with a number of the other subjects um, of other chapters and some of the other themes, the kind of overrun, uh, kind of running themes that the book explores. So, you know, would you mind talking a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I can talk this uh, briefly why I concluded this chapter. Uh, I concluded this book with Vasquez Hughes. And um, so basically, you know, uh, the book's title uh, comes from uh, two sources. And so Arise Africa uh, comes from a speech by W.E.B. Du Bois. And so he celebrated his 91st birthday in China at Beijing University in 1959. So he was invited to, to make a speech. And also the speech was broadcasted across the world. So in that speech, Du Bois called on Africa Arise, Facing the Rising Sun. Okay. That's why I opened this chapter uh, with uh, Du Bois. I mean, yeah, with a, with a chapter on the boy. Okay. And the second part of the title, uh, Raw China, is from a, a poem by Westin Hughes. So soon after Japan launched the full scale war on China back in 1937, Westin Hughes passionately penned this poem, uh, Raw China. So back then, he was in uh, Spain. Helping with helping, he was helping all of the Spanish for writing about it. Yeah, so this poem called for China's resistance. So I feel Arise Africa and Raw China, as articulated by uh, Du Bois and Higgs, respectively, match the serious struggles of a nation, that is to say, China, and a nation within a nation, that is to say, African Americans. Uh, so I think their power and promise resonant strongly until today. So again, I'm repeating myself, that, is, that was why I opened and closed the chapter with the story of Du Bois and Lasting Hughes respectively. So regarding how Lasting Hughes' story was related to other figures in this book, so we already discussed about Chen, his, his relationship with Chen. And so for, uh, I mean, Austin Hughes and Du Bois and Paul Robeson, and I'm not sure people would agree with me, but you know, I think they were the most famous cultural African American cultural giants uh, in the 20th century. Naturally, their careers and political activism uh, were interlocked. Okay, so their contacts with China and Chinese, and similarly powerfully shaped their philosophical, political, and personal perceptions of life and their future. Okay. So in the case of Austin Hughes, uh, when he wandered in Soviet Union in China, and uh, he found comfort and celebration there. And uh, like Du Bois and, and Robertson, uh, his journey there renewed uh, his leftist political commitment in addition to materials for his new style of radical writings as represented by the poem Raw China. It's really nice way, I think, to start to bring this um, interview, you know, to its conclusion. So thank you so much for providing that, um, you know, really nice way of, of kind of connecting, um, you know, the kind of different halves and different parts of the book together. I think that's really um very interesting way of thinking about that. So thank you for that. Um, you know, before we, you know, start to wrap up, I'm just sort of curious, we've talked about a lot, um, but is there anything, uh, as we've already talked about, there's a lot in this book that we did not get a chance to get to, unfortunately. So is there anything that you wanted to talk about in this interview that we did not yet get a chance to talk about? So two things, and I think, again, you encourage, uh, you know, I 
encourages reader to read about the chance, etc. Yeah, I do feel I have a lot to talk about, but time is limited. So I think it's a complex, yeah, complexity, you know, being a biracial person connected with a celebrity father and siblings. So I hope readers be interested, interested and yeah, to look further into the book, read on your own. Yeah, so here I'd like to r- remind uh, the listeners, yeah, if you're interested in reading the book, you can buy this book um, for uh, $23 at the UNC website with a 40% discount. Just a reminder. Uh, none of us. Who doesn't love a discount? And especially who doesn't love a 40% discount? That's yeah. a pretty good discount. Okay. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for that. that it is a it is also a beautiful book. Um, it's very you know this is not the the main attraction. Obviously, the main attraction are the things inside. But I, I will say um, it is a lovely book. So um, if you if you if you can afford it, um, it is it will look very nice on your bookshelf as well as uh, you know being something that you will enjoy reading. Um, so I guess I'm sort of curious. Um, you know, what, what's next for you? You know, what are you working on next? Um, you know, what are some other projects that might have your attention? Yeah, I will not drag, drag too long, just very briefly. Uh, currently, actually, I'm finishing uh, biographies of two uh, actresses of Chinese mm. heritage. And hopefully, they, yeah, I mean, this would model a transnationalized uh, Asian and Asian American history. And so this biographies are tentatively titled as the following. The first one was about a Hollywood actress. Her name was Shu Yang, so the title, Shu Yang, a Hollywood actress and cosmopolitan of the Asian diasporas. That's the first one. The second one is uh, uh, called Wang Ying, from Child Bride, Shanghai's literary star, and to the Trans-Pacific drama queen. Mm. Is that interesting? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I thought, you know, at the risk of repeating myself, I swear I'm not lying, but uh, Wang Ying is another person who I have always wondered about. So, um, I, so much sharing interest. <laughs> I know, I know. I, you know, I, I was, you know, like it's not an uncommon name. There are a lot of, but I was like, I think it might be that one. So, yeah, I actually have the child bride, and I, you know, it's something I read uh, in graduate school just because I was interested, and I, I've always been like, I really want to know more about this person. So, um, you know, Professor Gao, I uh, really very selfishly want you to finish that. Well, I, I you know, I hope to have you on for, for this, uh, you know, first biography, which is done, but um, we would love to have you back to talk about both of these projects. Um, you know, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. thank you so much for such a wonderful book and such an engaging conversation. Um, and so, you know, thank you so much. And we hope to have you back really soon. I look forward to that. <laughs> thank you for having me. Thank you.